You demonstrated, I think, nerve-to-nerve -nerve transmission or spread via nerve-to-nerve, -nerve, almost uh, in a synaptic way, uh, really through multiple brain regions. That's true. Uh, we found uh, the virus and also to be present, for example, in brainstem, so in, in regions which are very important for uh, regulation of central functions like uh, breathing, like uh, a heartbeat, um, which are regions which are not directly connected to the olfactory nerve in the first place. Well, hello everyone. Welcome again to the Empowering Neurologist. We have a very interesting program today. Today we're going to attempt to answer the question, how does COVID enter the brain? And beyond that, what are the implications of where this virus goes in the brain and what it does in the brain? We'll be interviewing Dr. Frank Hepner from Germany. Dr. Hepner is really leading the charge in terms of giving us information so we can understand what in the heck's going on in the brain uh, with respect to COVID-19 and what are the implications. So let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. Hepner. Dr. Hepner is a full professor and chairman of the Department of Neuropathology at the Charity Hospital University in Berlin. He has also done quite a bit of uh, training in neuropathology, having done work here in the States as well. He was an assistant professor at Scripps Institute in Florida. He also has uh, worked as a tenured professor of neuropathology at both uh, Queen Mary University in London and the Thomas Jefferson University here in Philadelphia. He's been a full professor professor of neuropathology at the University of Freiburg in Germany and also Emory University in Atlanta here in the States and has served as a senior director of biology neuroscience discovery with the Janssen company. So we're very delighted to have the opportunity to spend time with him today. Well, hello, Dr. Hepner. Welcome to the program. Hi there, David. Nice to be there. Thanks for the invitation. We're going to be covering the uh, invasion of the brain by this virus, but I'd like to just start off by, if you could, for our viewers, give us a sense as to how things are going along in Germany right now with uh, reference to the pandemic. Well, of course, Germany is also hit pretty heavily. We are right at the beginning of the so-called third wave of uh, the corona pandemics. We have right now increasing uh, cases again. Uh, we are facing also, um, as a society, a lockdown situation. Um, and uh, we still suffer from, uh, so to speak, the, the problems that arose in the first and second wave. I think this is uh, something uh, that is very important. Uh, we typically forget to talk about those uh, long-standing effects uh, that we are suffering still from the very beginning of the pandemics. And uh, therefore we are uh, hit in the very same fashion as many other countries, despite the fact that we, I think, have a, a pretty good health system, which um, helped us to um, at least uh, get the best possible support for those who were hit heavily by, by the corona pandemics. Now, you are having uh, a significant percentage of your new cases uh, representing variants of concern, correct? Yes, that's right. We have about 80% of, of mutants, uh, namely the B117 variant is very common here. And uh, this, uh, um, as uh, it is widely accepted right now, is of course more infectious and uh, apparently also more pathogenetically um, uh, striking. And, and therefore this, uh, of course, 
increases the severity of this uh, third wave. One of the things that uh, we've been talking about on, on the program here has been the notion of long-haul COVID. In other words, these extended uh, symptoms that people are experiencing. We, we recently interviewed Dr. Del Rio from uh, Emory, and he indicated that as many as a third of people, uh, even those who had minimal symptoms to begin with, with their COVID infection, uh, will go on to have uh, issues how long they're going to last is unclear. And I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but, but that really prompted you to begin to explore uh, how COVID affects the brain, how it gets into the brain and what the implications may be. So let's start off by just characterizing the method of entry. How does this virus get into the brain? Then we'll take it from there. So, I mean, um, I, as a neuropathologist, of course, was intrigued in the very beginning when the first cases uh, were coming up and the first, the first uh, deaths were occurring, we very earlier on here at uh, the Charité in Berlin decided together with the um, uh, surgical pathologist, uh, together with the forensic pathologists, uh, to study uh, the cases in detail. And uh, of course, we were struck uh, by the fact that uh, there were the, initially the acute neurological symptoms, so the loss of smell, the loss of taste, headache, uh, but uh, very early on, as you pointed out, uh, the first cases of the long COVID were coming up. I mean, the term, uh, the term was coined later on, and uh, we talk about the first wave when we started to ask the question, so how is the brain affected and uh, how would the, the virus get into the, the brain? That was uh, kind of the third March to uh, August last year. Well, we studied about 40 cases. In the meanwhile, we have looked at uh, um, uh, 100 uh, autopsy cases. And uh, the two questions were um, in the center of our, our interest. That was, uh, as I mentioned, how would the virus make it to the brain? And the second is, what does it uh, to the brain? And uh, we, of course, were assuming that uh, a coronavirus could maybe take the same type of approach that other viruses uh, would typically do, that is uh, take advantage of cranial uh, nerves, uh, where you know you have some uh, extensions uh, from the brain to the to the periphery, so to speak. And one of the most common uh, nerve that is sort of abused by uh, neurotropic viruses uh, is the olfactory uh, nerve. And we were basically mapping the olfactory nerve, starting from the olfactory mucosa up to uh, the specific brain regions, and we're just asking whether we can find the virus there by genetic methods, by protein methods, by ultrastructure. And um, the result was, yes, yes that uh, in most cases, we have a very high occupation of the olfactory mucosa, and specifically there of the neurons, of the olfactory neurons within the olfactory mucosa, so this is obviously the port of entry, and then sort of the virus climbs up to the brain and distributes uh, then in the brain also to regions which are not directly uh, connected to the um, olfaction or to the um, olfactory nerve uh, where the signals are processed. You demonstrated, I think, nerve-to-nerve -nerve transmission or spread via nerve-to-nerve, -nerve, almost uh, in a synaptic way, uh, really through multiple brain regions. That's true. Uh, we found uh, the virus and also to be present, for example, in brainstem, so in, in regions which are very important for uh, regulation of central functions like uh, breathing, like uh, a heartbeat, um, which 
are regions which are not directly create, co uh, connected to uh, the um, olfactory nerve in the first place. Maybe one important thing is, and that was also one of the uh, things we asked, is uh, in which cells in the brain we can find the virus. And there, and this is supported by many other studies in the meanwhile that were published, um, uh, we were not able to detect uh, the virus in, in nerve cells or in glial cells. We only found the nerve to be present in endothelial cells, so just next to vessels. And um, this, of course, um, is, is still an important question. It's not entirely clear whether uh, the virus can be also um, detected in other cells, but it also uh, makes it uh, possible that there is, besides this nerve um, entry, that whether there is also a bloodstream entry, uh, since, yes, endothelial cells, of course, are then the next uh, port of uh, optional um, additional entry besides uh, climbing up uh, the cranial nerves. So if indeed um, there is some uh, availability to enter the brain through the endothelial cell, that really just opens up the, then the entire brain for colonization. Exactly. And this, of course, would also explain why we can find the virus in brain regions that are not directly co uh, connected to, to the brain nerves, like the brainstem or other regions. And uh, as, as mentioned, this is in line with uh, a couple of other studies that look now into um, the virus and, and uh, brain infection, um, also in diseased COVID-19 patients. I want to get to that in just a moment, the potential role that the brainstem involvement is having in terms of autonomic dysfunction. But having said that, let me go back just for a moment for the endothelial uh, topic. Is there evidence of increased blood-brain permeability, a barrier permeability in this virus? Well, I think the data is not entirely clear. I mean, uh, the, the data is there and of course the, the limitations of uh, approaching this experimentally are uh, obviously limited and uh, therefore one can only assume that in the entire context of, and we should talk about that in addition, of the response to the virus, namely the immune response, the cytokine, sto cytokine storm, for example, that this uh, is known to open up the blood-brain barrier. So I would assume that the same takes place also in, in COVID-19 cases. And one other tangential question that comes to mind, I promise we'll get back to the brainstem in one moment. Is there uh, evidence that remdesivir as an antiviral does have good uh, permeability into the brain as do the typical herpes simplex uh, type uh, antivirals? Well, that's a, that's a, a difficult question uh, to, to ask a neuropathologist. Um, I mean, this is a typical uh, limitation and typical discussions when it comes down to uh, how good this uh, drug in, in general uh, um, is able to enter the brain. You may have uh, physiological uh, data, pharmacokinetic data, uh, which you typically then have in a, in a, a healthy setting. But uh, of course, you would not be able to um, mimic this and address this really in, in, in total, um, with total insight in a, in a um, pathophysiological setting. You've given us evidence that uh, there is involvement of multiple regulatory centers in the, in the brain stem uh, that are involved in autonomic function, et cetera. So what might some of the clinical presentations be or relationships be uh, that we might be seeing, for example, in a patient in an intensive care situation that might be related to dis dysregulation from a, uh, centrally? Um, of course, I mean, uh, the classical priority symptom is the lung dysfunction. 
And of course, if you have an ITS patient uh, that has a lung problem due to COVID-19, and on top, you may have an affection centrally by dysregulation of uh, this region, of this brain region that uh, directs and orchestrates um, the lung function, the breathing. Uh, this, of course, does not help. I mean, this is the least to say. And it's, of course, difficult then to um, subtract and assign uh, why uh, the, the breathing function is uh, disabled. Um, it's difficult to say because, you know, you basically have the lung problem and on top you have a central problem that also affects the brain. So, it's, I, as mentioned, it's difficult to subtract and really say where, where the general problem comes. But I think it's important to keep in mind that uh, the breathing dysfunction may very easily, by this explanation, come uh, from a central problem. And what about cognitive dysfunction? I mean, cognitive dysfunction, uh, especially when we now uh, point to the long COVID problems, to the dizziness and then these types of, of things, which are long-lasting problems, I think it's important to state um, that we found that there's kind of an inverse correlation um, in the amount of virus we find in the brain and the duration of uh, the disease. Um, and this uh, brings and opens up the discussion whether it's a uh, virus triggered, it's an, whether this is an active process uh, through the virus or whether this is the reaction, for example, of the immune system to the virus. And the fact, as mentioned, that we see uh, little virus, the longer a patient is diseased, points to the fact that the immune system is rather the problem of, for example, these long COVID uh, neurological problems and also the cognitive decline. And um, this, of course, is very interesting when we switch back and look at what we learned over the last decade about neuroimmune uh, and inflammatory effects in the brain in, con in the context of dementia, of neurodegeneration, where we have learned that the inflammation can be a trigger of uh, cognitive dysfunction. And uh, going back to COVID-19, I think that um, Many of these neurological problems and uh, these um, problems with cognition are rather triggered by the virus that then acts through the immune system. So it's more an immune problem in the end. Oh, that's interesting. So, I mean, our, our viewers are pretty uh, familiar with the notion of chronic inflammation under underlying things like uh, Alzheimer's, uh, certainly Parkinson's. Is there uh, any sense that there is any relationship between this infection and ultimately an amyloid type of response? I think it's too early to say that because, I mean, we know about COVID-19 only for one and a half years. Uh, but uh, if you ask me, I mean, uh, my basic uh, research field is uh, Alzheimer's is uh, and your inflammation. So I've been working on, on uh, innate immune reaction on microglial cells in the brain for, for decades. And my pretty simple answer is yes, uh, there will be an infection. I'm, I'm expecting this because um, I, uh, uh, I'm a strong believer in chronic inflammation does trigger a cognitive dysfunction, which may be, um, uh, of course, as kind of a surrogate marker. Uh, trigger also um, a higher uh, amount of amyloid deposition. I think amyloid deposition is one of the typical ways how um, dysfunction in the brain is uh, is mimicked or is is uh, transported. That's a cause of concern. That uh, you know, hearing you say that, it's something I've been thinking about. You know, we 
characterize amyloid as being an antimicrobial peptide and wondering if indeed there would be, if this would be enough. There's speculation, certainly work of Dr. Ruth Itzaki, that uh, amyloid is a response element as it relates to chronic HSV-1 uh, infection. And, you know, my concern is if the number of people uh, who are expected to uh, get COVID, uh, if that, whatever that number is, it's a large number on the planet, and whatever percentage of those do have, in fact, a central nervous system involvement, then the long-term implications as it relates to what we just talked about, this upregulation of amyloid production, could really have an impact on the set point of cognition for our planet, if you will. On the other hand, I don't want to sort of uh, um, point to uh, two shocking scenarios. Uh, I think we've been suffering from that as well a lot within the COVID-19 pandemics. Um, but I think that, you know, subtle infections or uh, obvious infections, uh, virus infections, uh, bacterial infections are something we're exposed to uh, the entire life. And I think we only understand with these type of very acute and very severe viral infections that they also do something uh, probably long-term wise to our brains. But this is certainly not the only virus. And we have been exposed earlier to such events. And I remember, for example, a very intriguing, to me, a very intriguing uh, animal study where uh, mice were um, very early on um, exposed to a very general inflammatory stimulus. And these mice, they were not altered whatsoever. It did develop Alzheimer-like um, changes. So this is one of the uh, very strong um, experiments and proves to me that a pure early on subtle inflammation uh, will um, have an impact to your brain and will of course uh, do something and there's so many other studies um, that, that show that that of course any type of inflammation um, even if you do not notice this like in the COVID-19 context may have an impact so I think Anti-inflammation is something that systemically, but also brain-wise, is something we have to keep much more in focus on. And if we, you know, translate medicine into uh, something that will turn into more prophylactic procedures, I think this is the, the, the goal of, of many medical approaches, um, to not see patients and try to heal them once they're diseased, but rather to prevent diseases. Uh, having this in mind will also uh, certainly put our efforts towards um, avoiding inflammation in general terms. Well, that said, you know, the original rodent, rodent work was done by giving these animals lipopolysaccharide or LPS. And then it was followed, interestingly, by giving them dextran sodium sulfate, which did what? Disrupted the integrity of their gut lining, allowing LPS to make its way into the systemic circulation. And as you rightly characterized, did indeed produce Alzheimer's-like changes uh, in those rodents. So to your point exactly then, we've got to do what we can to maintain gut lining integrity as it relates to the future health of our brain. You know, we live in a time when there's still quite a bit of pushback relating things going on within the gut to the brain. But when, as you well mentioned, uh, we make this relationship to inflammation as being that bridge, then it becomes uh, certainly a lot more meaningful, a lot more understandable, and, and certainly leverageable in terms of our lifestyle choices. I'd like to uh, move on, if we could, to the notion of any vasculopathy as it relates to the brain that may explain some of the pathology related to COVID-19. 
Yes, I think this is one of the obvious and generally accepted second or at least substantial affections that endothelial cells systematically and systemically in the periphery but also in the brain are affected that we have an endothelitis. And this, of course, in combination with the uh, affection on uh, the uh, bloodstream and coagulation um, uh, makes us prone to suffer from thrombosis. And uh, thrombotic events or thromboembolic events, uh, of course, specifically in the brain, are yet another very striking phenomenon uh, that uh, uh, many of the COVID-19 um, uh, disease patients that we looked at were suffering from. I mean, there were first initial clinical um, um, descriptions. There was this New England Journal of Medicine paper from our colleagues in Mount Sinai that described the first uh, signs and then the first uh, autopsy reports confirmed that. And also we see large uh, infarction uh, due to thrombosis, but we see also a many a small vessels uh, affected um, in the COVID-19 situations which make not large areas of infarctions, but make these little uh, tiny uh, micro uh, vascular problems and um, micro infarcts, as we call them, which you only can detect by the microscopic um, assessments. And in, in addition, in combination, they, of course, are yet another uh, reason why cognitive uh, problems may arise, because, you know, in, in some you have uh, um, an affection on, on an originally healthy uh, CNS tissue in those uh, situations. Dr. Hepner, there has been some indication uh, that the binding to the H2 receptor might allow this virus to induce a mitochondropathy, may actually affect mitochondrial function, mitochondrial replication, etc. And in that, the brain is so energy dependent and therefore rich in mitochondria. Has there been any observation that this may be occurring and therefore explain some of the dysfunction? Well, um, there I can only speculate. I mean, we have ongoing um, single cell genomics uh, assessments uh, where we have found um, glycolytic changes in microglial cells in the brain. Uh, this, of course, is a bit difficult when you take autopsy cases because you have an agonal phase where you anyway have metabolic change. So this is difficult in the situation to assess. But I think, um, as you mentioned, it's very likely that this may play a role uh, due to the energy consumption that the brain typically has. Um, but maybe uh, one point to the ACE2 um, uh, receptor status. Uh, I think it's uh, um, uh, important uh, to state, and this brings us back to which cells we found to be infected within the brain. Um, ACE2 is not very highly expressed in the brain. And it, I think there's no really convincing data that would uh, um, say there's ACE2 expression, for example, in neurons, which explains why we do not typically find it within the brain um, uh, and why we more easily find it in endothelial cells. So I think this is also something because it gives us a reasoning uh, about the pattern where the virus can be found uh, in the brain. Uh, still, it's there in the brain, and we discussed already uh, the, the consequences of, of the presence of, of the virus. There's a, a pretty direct, at least physical, connection between this uh, olfactory uh, input and the hippocampus. So are you finding much involvement of the hippocampus in terms of, therefore, memory? Well, um, the, the memory, I mean, I can only, again, refer to our study with uh, the cases 
And uh, of course, it's very difficult uh, in tissue to uh, make any um, assessment about the functional status of brain regions such as the hippocampus. We only could look at the amount of, of, um, of neurons, of healthy neurons, which again is a, a pretty bad um, correlation uh, to make with the, the functional um, um, intactness uh, during life. So from this perspective, it's, it's very difficult to, to make a, a proper statement. Um, there's kind of a notion here, uh, certainly amongst younger people, that the risk of death from COVID-19 infection is really low, certainly less than 1%. Therefore, why should we worry? And yet, uh, with what you're seeing, I think, at least in your specimens, was, was fairly pervasive. How would you respond to this idea that look if i get it i'm not going to die so what why is everybody so excited about it yeah i mean it's a that's a that's a difficult question i mean a twofold answer of course uh, the, the classical one you may be uh, a spreader and you may you know give it to someone who is directly uh, affected and uh, the second part of the answer clearly is i mean you just look at the acute uh, um, issues we are well aware of them and you may if you're young go well um, away with it, but do not forget about the potential long-term effects. And um, as uh, discussed in the very beginning, there are clear cases where you have very subtle COVID-19 problems and you basically feel normal, but you still end up uh, having long COVID. And we don't know about the ending of a long COVID. I mean, we have not uh, um, experience of the long-term uh, long COVID uh, outcome. And it may well be that these long COVID problems may be rather permanent. And, and this, uh, this is a risk that even uh, young people uh, may have to face. And therefore, it's better for everybody, even for the young ones, to protect and uh, to get vaccinated and to take any kind of protection. You're doing some really amazing work. It's breathtaking. You know, I've read uh, not only what you're doing now, but what, what you've been doing over the past uh, decade or so, and it's breathtaking. I mean, I think that um, it's important for our viewers to realize that we interview a lot of clinicians to give them ideas about what they could do in terms of changing their lifestyle. The bench work, the, the hard science that explains what's going on, I think is so incredibly valuable, certainly uh, these days. I wonder if you could just speculate in terms of what's next, in terms of what, what you're going to look at next. What would be the most important thing upcoming that you think you need to explore? In the COVID-19 context, I think um, we certainly would like to understand the true actions of the immune system. Um, as mentioned, uh, I believe, and I think uh, um, many in the community believe, that the immune actions are initiated, triggered by the virus, but then the immune action as such is basically um, uh, resulting in the, in the bad outcomes. So to understand what specific immune actions are taking place is, I think, key to know how specifically modulate in a, in a, in a therapeutical sense, uh, modulate the immune system to avoid any bad outcome. And this, in a, in a bigger picture, I think will tell us a lot how, going back to my original uh, index disease, which is, is Alzheimer's, how we can all even learn for these long-lasting neurodegenerative diseases where we have learned that uh, neuroinflammation also plays a role. So to look how systemically uh, the immune system, even in the brain, even in chronic uh, protein uh, deposition diseases, how this uh, may be altered by the immune system, uh, will be the next step. And as mentioned, I think we can le learn a lot 
from uh, diseases like COVID-19 because in the end, I think this is all connected and we have to think um, not just in certain disease entities and we even should look beyond the brain and understand that the connection of, uh, we talked about the gut, we talked about uh, how uh, the gut is affected by what we eat and we also uh, will learn by this how this entire system is altering the immune system, which then um, also um, affects uh, brain function. And it's all connected, it's all a big system. And I think this is the exciting next steps that we go beyond disciplines, beyond the compartments and learn from each other. Um, clinician, basic sciences, the different disciplines. And I think this will be not the next, but this will be even the next step after the next step uh, where we bring things together. And uh, that's what I'm looking forward to. Uh, uh, what, what I would like to really do uh, also on the bench. Well, let me just say on, on behalf of, of all of our viewers and uh, people who, who follow what we're doing, uh, thank you because uh, what your work is all about is really contributing an awful lot. It's really very helpful. And thank you for spending time with us today. Thank you very much, Dave. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. That is some very, very interesting research uh, that Dr. Hepner has performed and continues to perform. Uh, really, we need to move away from the notion that COVID-19 is exclusively a pulmonary issue or an immune issue and realize that it does aggressively affect the brain. And as we talked about today, this may well explain some of the long haul symptoms that seem to be so very common these days. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Dr. David Perlmutter on the Empowering Neurologist, and we will be back soon. Thank you.